Hello and welcome to That Blonde Ads Podcast. Um, today I'm interviewing a man by the name of Jürgen. Um, he tells us about his upbringing in Scotland, um, his teenage years and then uh, his battle with cancer at uh, a young age, um, which definitely puts things into perspective. Um, and then he also tells us about another obstacle that he faced later on in life, which um, led him to being completely blind now. Um, we also talk about uh, life during lockdown, how difficult it's been, or not so difficult in some circumstances. Um, and then he, he goes on to talk about what he hopes to get out of life um, in the future. Um, so I hope you enjoy. And if you do, then please subscribe or follow so you get a notification for when uh, my next podcast is out. So yeah, hope you enjoy and I'll catch you soon. Jürgen, um, who has a pretty interesting story to tell, um, just from the snippets he's told me anyway. Um, Jürgen, hello, how are you? Afternoon, Jimmy. I am good, mate. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. In fact, thanks for thanks for joining me and uh, allowing everyone to hear your story. No, absolute pleasure. So, um, let's probably start from the beginning. Just, I mean, you told me you've you was born in the Netherlands. Is that right? Yeah. So, was born in Holland. Um, but as my accent might give away, uh, <laughs> I uh, grew up in Scotland. So, we moved over to Scotland when I was two years old. Two years old. Okay. So, you, I'm guessing you didn't get much. Like kind of memory of being in the Netherlands. No, only sort of not like childhood memories of Holland or really going to visit uh, my my Dutch grandmother or Oma, as it is in Dutch. Uh, but no, I don't I can't say I remember being there as a kid. Like in terms of living there. Okay, so is that is is that you? Who's who's in your family at this time then? So it's just well, really me and my mum. So. You- Fair yeah, so my mum, my mum and my dad were both Dutch, um, but my dad um, actually died a few years before I was born. I was one of the first uh, test tube babies, actually. Um, my dad had had cancer, and when he'd gotten cancer, decided to well, with my mum decided he'd make a, a donation in a certain kind of bank. And a few years later, mum decided she wanted to have a kid, and that's how I came along. Wow, I didn't. That's <laughs> that's that is, that is good, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I think it's 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 important to say that going back then, you you was you had um, complete vision, didn't you? You didn't have any issues, so to speak. No, I mean, in terms of my vision, I mean, um, I grew up well, being very right eye predominant because I. completely separate issue I grew up with uh, a misshapen uh, pupil in my left eye so my left uh, pupil in my left eye is like a shaped like a pear but like dropping down um, which was completely unrelated but yeah I mean ostensibly um, I grew up with you know as good as my vision could be yeah okay that's interesting so moving over to to Scotland what was what was your kind of childhood and upbringing like there up until yeah so we moved over to scotland because well mum met a scottish guy on holiday um and they sort of fell in love got married and we moved over to scotland uh i grew up in a town called kirkcaldy which is about half an hour north of edinburgh so sort of halfway between uh edinburgh and st andrews so really sort of 
it's a really nice town, I would say. Um, yeah. A sort of fairly middle class upbringing. Um, you know, playing golf early on a Saturday morning in the kids' competition, <laughs> and then straight off to watch the mighty Wraith Rovers afterwards at the home of football, Starts Park. Uh, so. <laughs> actually about that football team. I always wonder. I couldn't, couldn't pick where they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's the the famous statement, "Dancing in the streets of Wraith," uh, which a football commentator made after Wraith got to the Scottish Cup final. I think in I think it was nineteen sixty four or something ridiculous. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, Wraith is the name of a part of the town. But yeah, people are always like Wraith Rovers. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> So what what was what would you say? Did you have any hobbies or any interests being in Scotland, like growing up in your teen years? Yeah, so I was um, a big uh, field hockey guy. Like, so from the age of sort of eight or nine, I played uh, field hockey for a local club and kind of got into sort of like regional teams and things like that as part of like East of Scotland and stuff like that. But up until the age of sort of 16, 17, from the age of nine, hockey was probably three or four nights a week, at least. Okay. Um, so I really always enjoyed that. And being in Scotland, I mean, golf's always a big thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, playing football with my mates down the local park, all the sort of things you would expect. But yeah, I guess one of the really great things living in Scotland was once the winter came around, you could kind of, if the snow had fallen up in the Highlands, you could be leave the house and then two hours later you could be up in Aviemore and spend the day skiing, which was that was a really nice part oh, of it. Yeah. That's not, that's not too bad of a thing to do, is it? Just, no. just casually get up and have a bit of a ski. <laughs> yeah, it was good. So um what what was your going through your teen years? I'm guessing you went you went through obviously primary school and secondary school as I call it anyway. Is that is that all fairly straightforward for you? Uh, primary school was so I mean primary school I went to a really small uh, private primary school in Kirkcaldy so it was about 70 kids in the school so that was really isolated Um, and then high school kind of mum gave me the choice of that I want to go to boarding school uh, or that I want to go to the local state school so um, because a lot of my friends, obviously my friends locally were all going to the local state school, I decided that's where I wanted to go. And, I mean, having a name like Jürgen uh, did attract uh, <laughs> some bullying, it'd have to be said. Biz- bizarrely, I wasn't the only Jürgen in my school. Yeah, there was a, a Jürgen Schumacher uh, in the year below me. Um, he did not sound German uh, it would have to be said um, but yeah you know you kind of got picked on a bit for that but uh, broadly speaking I mean you know it was the sort of classic high school experience I would say yeah. Um, yeah, it was you know it was one of those kind of typical state schools capacity of 1800 but actually had two and a half thousand kids so a little bit crammed, so I can't mm. even imagine how they're dealing with that these days. But it's uh, it was you know it was a good school. It's got to be said, got me through, uh, got me through the high school days, and got me ready to go off to university at the end of it. Yeah. So um, going going through school, you you mentioned university there. Is that what you I'm guessing you did your A levels or whatever you want to call them back then? And 
Was that your path, the original yeah. path? Well, so, yeah, in Scotland, we do hires and advanced hires. Um, I mean, at the, the start of our final year of high school, which is six year in Scotland, we had this sort of university application day. I always remember uh, it was actually my physics teacher, but one of our assistant heads of the school kind of was coming around all the tables and came up to our table and was like, right, boys, who, who here is planning to go to university? <laughs> and I put my hand up and he just gave me this look and went, Jürgen, be serious. Um, <laughs> I guess I had not impressed him in physics. It was Confidence. Yeah, well, he, he didn't seem convinced. Um, I mean, I did somehow pull out of nowhere a pretty respectable grade in physics. Not quite sure how that happened, but uh, yeah, I did. I guess I was probably not the most serious student in high school, um, it would have to be said. Pulled out some decent grades in the end. But yeah, I think, you know, like many people, um, particularly of our age, it was basically that that was what you were just told that you were meant to do. You get through high school, you get your grades, and then depending on how smart you're perceived to be, then dictated the kind of university uh, you looked at going to. Um, mm. And I guess in my last couple of years of high school, I don't know why, but I started really developing an interest in politics and economics. Um, okay. It's pretty weird things to pick an interest in. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the same. I'm, I'm with you on that when I'm, I got into a similar age. So yeah, you're not alone there. Yeah. So that that sort of then led sort of kind of where I looked at what I wanted to apply for. And then my predicted grade sort of dictated where I was then going to apply to. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that is that it was economics and politics? Is that the, the path you ended up taking? Yeah. Education? Yeah. So I applied to a couple of different universities, but I don't know if you guys do it down south, but I sort of did. We did like... Um, university visit weekends where you sort of went to university for a night or whatever as part of a sort of um, schools were invited to the university or to send prospective students and I went up to Aberdeen University and I just remember that the first time I walked around the campus I was like yeah this is me (laughs) this this is where I want to go uh, that feeling, I think you can get that feeling for a lot of things, especially especially something as big as that. Soon, if you walk into a place and think this feels right, you know it's the one for you, don't you? Yeah, completely. It was just, it was the oddest thing because I kind of I went to, to visit Glasgow University. I was like, no, this isn't it. Stirling, I was like, no, this isn't it. Dundee, <laughs> I was like, this is definitely not it. Uh, and then I got up to Aberdeen, and yeah, it just, it just, you know, when you kind of feel that sense that this is where I fit. Um, yeah. yeah, that was the sort of decision made. Was all at that point, it did depend on me pulling out a couple of grades in my final exams, but thankfully that came to pass. Um, I was actually because when I finished high school, I then went off to America for three and a half months to do Camp America. Oh, wow! Um, so I was. That was back in the days where we were all on MSN Messenger, and there was the <laughs> there was there was two computers in the camp staff room um, that you could use, and you know, didn't my mobile phone at that point did not have uh, international roaming? It would have no. to be said. So <laughs> it was on the payphone in the campsite to mum on exam day to get the grades to figure out whether or not I was going to make it to university. Oh wow! Didn't. 
like you said, you moved to America uh, later on. But was was moving from your home to university, Aberdeen University, difficult, or did you kind of take it in your stride? Um, I, it it was it was different because I mean, Kirkcaldy is a town of about sixty five thousand people, and you know, going to Edinburgh was always like, oh, going to the big city, and. Yeah. You know, even going to Aberdeen, by comparison, it's well, it's it's not a big city, but it is a city. So, it was you know, for like for most people, it was the first time in my life that I was sort of breaking out on my own. Uh, it was self catered halls, so it was the first time I'd ever had contemplated having to cook for myself. And yeah, I think broadly took it in my stride. I mean, being kind of sports boy at uni was pretty easy because you know first Wednesday went to the sports fair joined the hockey club that night you had the hockey club initiation um mm. don't think they're allowed to do that anymore but the <laughs> the uh the initiation the initiation ceremony and you meet your sort of um your peer group of hockey lads who are of the same age and that's just sort of set up like immediately you know I had a few mates from my flat in halls and then I had instantly 20, 30, 40 friends in the hockey club, which yeah. definitely made settling into university life a lot easier. I can imagine, yeah. The thing is that you go going back to when you said about food, you you certainly um we'll go on to it later on, but you certainly took the food up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, the first the first time I it was kind of the first or second week of uni, and me and my flatmates, we kind of agreed, right, okay, lads. We're all going to take it in turns a few nights a week to cook for each other. So <laughs> I um, I was like, right, okay, I'm on it tonight. I was like, I'm going to make a pasta bake, like, you know, buy pasta, yeah. bought some uh, pasta sauce, like, you know, pasta bake sauce. And, yeah. you know, I uh, didn't know you had to boil the pasta before you baked it. So <laughs> <laughs> in the raw pasta, poured the sauce over. I was like, right, that's easy enough. Off we go. <laughs> <laughs> it came out as a uh, a teeth shattering monstrosity <laughs> it would have to be said but yeah no as you say we can talk about it later but no food's uh <laughs> become a bigger part of my life later on it's got to yeah. be said but yeah, it didn't didn't start out very well <laughs> sounds like something i'd still do now to be honest <laughs> so um so yeah you get, you're going through you're going through uni i'm getting like you said you've used you've made friends and you in yeah. your living spaces and hockey clubs and that um, so you, you mentioned going to America. Is that? So I'm guessing you did you get the grades that you wanted in Union, and that that dictated your American trip, or? Well, so no. So America was between high school and uni. So oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I decided I was going to go and do this Camp America thing. You kind of took left pretty much two weeks after I finished high school, and the the sort of program finished a few weeks before I was due to go to uni. So. Uh, it was basically the duration of that summer. Um, so it kind of went over and, you know, it was one of the international counsellors. So you're going to yeah. get trained up on kind of teaching and coaching a few different things, uh, different activities at camp. And you've got you and your co-counsellor have a cabin of 10 kids that you've got to look after, which was certainly interesting. Uh <laughs> But yeah, it was it's one of those things. I'm still really glad I did it. I mean, 18 years later, terrifyingly. But yeah, it's <laughs> I'm still friends with some of the guys I met um, oh, wow. that summer. Yeah, I suppose. Suppose that uh, you know a massive you know twelve hour to eight twelve hours on a plane. That's 
kind of gives you the experience of, you know, this is you and, you know, uni is kind of small, if anything, compared to a big trip like that. Well, yeah, I, was, I mean, it was one of the, it was certainly the first time I'd flown off somewhere on my own. So, you know, I yeah. flew to New York and then you had these instructions you got uh, when you were flying out of what you had to do. So I flew into New York and then you've got to get on this bus and you've got to get to Grand Central down in like center of Manhattan. Then you've got to get on this bus and you get on that bus. And for me, I had to get the bus from New York down to Annapolis in Maryland. And then mm. once I got that bus, I had to get another bus to this place called Ann Water. And then somebody would meet me there. And I remember being on the bus out of New York and I just sort of heard this lad sort of talking to himself. You hear this Welsh accent. I was like, oh, all right, mate, I'm Scottish. How are you? <laughs> and it was weird. It turned out we were actually going to the same place. Um, okay. We were going to the same summer camp. So we sort of got talking and it was, yeah, it was, it was a good sort of life experience, right? Because it just sort yep. of kind of gave you a bit of confidence that you can sort of break out on your own and kind of do things for yourself. Mm, and as far as I, like you say, you mean that Welsh mix, it's, it's uh, coming across things that you know when you're used to that definitely helps you settle in that bit quicker, I, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean that guy, him and I, pretty much from the moment we arrived at camp, we're like good mates because we're like, yeah, we met on the bus. We know each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just, yeah, I, I think like anything, you know, I think when you do something like that and you go off on your own, it, it pushes you outside your comfort zone and it Definitely. makes you learn how to kind of go and build those sorts of friendships and relationships from scratch because you've got to, right? I mean, you're yeah. in a place where you don't know anyone else, so you've just got to put yourself out there and get on with it. Yeah, 100%, yeah. So you're going through uni. Did, did you get what you wanted from university? Uh, <clears throat> um depends what you mean what you wanted at university I guess so um, I was doing well through first and second year for I mean first year I sort of scraped by but second year I was doing pretty well um, mm -hmm. university in Scotland is four years rather than three yeah. and halfway through my third year things took a bit of a turn um, I was well my girlfriend at the time we um, mm kind of noticed the sort of yellow lump growing off just like popping out from just inside my hip and didn't really come up just like well it's a bruise you know just a hockey ball hit me or something I don't know and she sort of said to me go to the doctor I said, I'm not going to the doctor and she sort of well um blackmailed me she said we're not having sex again until you go to the doctor so <laughs> off, off I went to the doctor pretty sharpish and I mean, it was one of those things where I could tell just by the way the doctor looked at me uh, mm. that it wasn't good. And he did some blood tests and said, I'll get it, you know, we'll get an appointment for you to come back in five days. Um, so I was all the more terrified when he called me the next morning and said, I need to see you now. Yeah. Um, so girlfriend and I, she came with me actually just because it just seemed like the thing to do. And went up to the doctor and he sat me down and he just looked at me and said, you've got cancer. And it's not, it's not a phrase you ever get over. No. How, how old were you when this happened? 20. 20. Wow. Um, he couldn't tell me how bad it was. He couldn't tell me really what it was, but he could tell from the markers in my blood that I had a cancer. 
mm-hmm. and I was basically then immediately referred to uh, the oncology department at uh, Aberdeen Royal Infirmary to get you know further tests to get checked out and to kind of figure out exactly what what it was mm. um and that i mean that all happened in the sort of space of days but i mean i still remember coming out of the gp surgery that day and just saying to my girlfriend right um i've got to go and sort things out she's like what do you mean oh there's things i need to there's things i need to do so at the time i was on the university sports council so kind of helped arrange all the different sports events and sports societies at the university and one of one of my good friends was the the vice president of the sport for the uni and i was like right okay uh i need to go but the first thing i did was i marched down to the sports union and i went i was like david i've got to resign from the sports union and he's like well, why i've got cancer i don't know what kind it is but i've got to resign that's what i've got to do and i just went into this sort of I don't know, like machine, like these are the things I have to do. I need yeah. to speak to my tutorial, my um, uh, academic advisor, tell him I'm, I'm got to be, I need to be suspended from university or medical grounds. I need to resign from this. I need to do this. I need to do that. And I just sort of went for a couple of weeks. I just kind of went into a real sort of, I don't know. I just shut everything off and kind of went into a, a process of uh, these are the things I need to do. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. And it was it was probably three or four days later. Um, I was with my oncology specialist in the hospital, and he told me that um, from the scans they had found three tumors uh, in lymph nodes in the in and around well from my hip and then up my side that two of the tumors were stage three and one of the tumors was stage four and the cancer was spreading Mm. and at that point he i mean he sort of said to me well if i'm being honest with you i think you've probably got six months wow um that's hard to take at such a young age and it to be told that just in the space of days it was terrifying i mean yeah. i guess and i guess i just fired back at him well what can we do he was like well mm. i mean you know yeah we, we we can try chemo but you know i have to advise you that if we do the chemo route it's going to be hitting you with a sledgehammer and that could mean you've only got two or three months and i just turned around to him and said well i'd rather go out trying than sit back and wait for it mm. so I mean, literally from there, I mean, this is, that was the 18th of December, um, 2004. And then literally a week later, I was, kind of went home for Christmas, which was an odd Christmas, as you can imagine. And a week later, I was back in the hospital starting chemo. And the chemo would be, we'd start at about eight in the morning. And it would finish about seven at night. Um, so I'd have a few hours of hydration of them putting kind of fluids into my system. And then I'd have three different chemo drugs um, across the day. And then another um, load of hydration. And that would be five days straight staying overnight in the hospital doing that. Um, followed by three weeks of being in once a week then in for five days again 
and I went through that cycle, three full cycles. The the final cycle took a lot longer because my white blood cell count dropped through the floor and they had to let my body sort of recuperate a bit more before they could give me more chemo. Mm. Uh, I mean, by the time I started the chemo, the little yellow bump uh, on my hip had grown into, it was probably like, I don't know, like a large orange sized growth coming out my side Um, and was a really sort of menacing like vibrant yellow color which quite disconcerting having a weird yellow thing growing out your side (laughs) yeah yeah exactly right um and i was i was fortunate because i mean i was really fortunate because i mean after my first full chemo cycle of the five days then the three weeks um it was I'd probably gone from like a, a two or two percent to five percent chance of survival to about a fifty percent chance of survival because my body just took the chemo so well. Mm. Um I mean I was lucky, I was young, I was fit, uh, so my body could take a bit of a pounding in that regard yeah. from the chemo. Um and it was probably during the halfway through the second full cycle of chemo. I still remember the oncologist coming in to see me and this guy didn't come in to see you very often. Like he left mm-hmm. it to his minions to do the, that sort of work. And I still remember him coming in and just looking at me and going, I think you're going to make it. I was like, I know I'm going to make it. Um, yeah. I was particularly arrogant 20 year old. It'd have to be said, <laughs> uh, which I do. I do actually think helped. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm really careful about saying this now, but I think there is, for some people, depending on who you are, having a positive mental attitude can have a physical response in your body. Yeah. And I think for me personally, it definitely did. Um, you know, I sort of willed myself through it sometimes and sort of just picking myself up and getting on with things. Um, mm. But, I mean, people talk about it, but I cannot... Uh, overstate how horrific chemo is i mean after halfway through the second cycle i mean i'd lost probably about three stone in weight i've gone from probably 11 stone to about eight stone um and your mouth is just full of ulcers so you know like you get like one little ulcer in your lip it's a bit, it's a bit annoying you're like oh, get a bit of bungello <laughs> on that bad boy yeah. <laughs> um but at that point i would have like 20 25 ulcers in my mouth at any sure. given time yeah. Uh, and the only thing I could manage eating because the hospital food was not good was uh, my mum's chicken noodle soup. So she basically <laughs> moved into my flat in Aberdeen sharing with one of my mates <laughs> and um, tramped us a little bit that year, I have to say. But uh, yeah, my mum's chicken noodle soup, that was pretty much the only thing I could actually manage to eat and then keep down. Could that have been the special ingredient, your mom's chicken soup? I think I think it was part of it. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think uh, every little helps, and I think yeah, definitely, yeah. I think just being able to eat and keep something down at that point was so important that yeah. the fact that you know, in my head, obviously, my 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 body had decided this is something it was willing to accept definitely helped because I'd often eat. I mean, you know, when you're going through that much chemo, vomiting is also one of the absolutely delightful side effects. Uh, 
keeping food down for a few hours was a win. So yeah, hundred percent. So in that, so from being told that you have cancer to the mm. point of being cleared from it, what what was what, what time was that? Yeah, so, you... so basically it was the eighteenth of December. Uh, I got went into hospital. Sixteenth, I was diagnosed. Uh, it was around the start of April um, of that following year, two thousand five, when they could no longer detect any signs of cancer in my blood. Um, And at that point, you're technically in remission. Yeah. Um, I was then, you know, in remission for five years. And then they gave me the sort of anointment of, you have the all clear. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, no. A life-shaping experience. I'll put it that way. I can imagine. I can imagine just the feel of someone saying, "You know, you're going into a mission. You, you're you're beating it." Basically, that must have been uh, an incredible feeling. So, you know, you beat one of the most, if not the deadly, most deadly diseases out there. Oh, massively. I mean, I still people think it's sort of morbid in a way, but every year I've got I have my cancer birthday which is, everyone's like, well, shouldn't that be the day you got the all clear? I'm like, no, no, no. My cancer birthday is the day I was diagnosed. And every year I go out with friends, we have some drinks and celebrate the fact that I'm still here because it's a battle. And I mean, you know, I, uh, there was a really great charity set up kind of around the time I was ill, um, still around today called, well, there's no software paying it. It's the name of the charity, but called Fuck Cancer. And yeah. it just it's just the best statement. It's just like, yeah, it's exactly how I feel. That. You know what I mean? And yeah. about four years ago, five years ago, I got it tattooed um, on my upper right arm. So I've got a band uh, around the upper part of my right arm where hmm. cancer ribbon, F-U, cancer ribbon, cancer cancer ribbon as a band around my arm and i absolutely love it like just having (laughs) it there is just like the best reminder of you know what i went through the strength that i needed to go through it and you know the strength that it gave me yeah it's it's incredible it's just you know it's like you said that that's possibly the the best thing you could say just just the middle finger up to cancer you know absolutely and I think celebrating, I don't know if you want to use that word, but you know, making a point of that day you were diagnosed each year, I think it's just, just powers you more, I'm guessing. just says, you know, you're still here, look, you've you, you done it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible achievement, so to speak. Oh, completely. I'll always mark it, whether it's just a quiet drink or if it's out with friends. Like, it is always just about just being thankful for it mm. you know yeah it's celebrating it and it's being thankful for the fact that i'm still here because you know if i'd been a different kind of person i could have taken the oncologist's advice and just gone home and waited for well, not to be morbid but wait, waited for the grim reaper to come along pretty much it's, it's crazy and it's crazy i just that that simple decision of yes or no it just changes your entire life basically massively so the fire when you was told you was 
pretty much going into remission. And so, what was those five years like for you? Did you did it just did you just put it to the back of your mind and get on with everything? Completely. So, I mean, when when I that April when I was told that there was no longer any signs of cancer in my blood, um, my girlfriend at the time and I we headed out to Dubai to where her parents lived for a few weeks for R and R, and I just started to kind of let my body rest for a little while. Um, mm. I was, you know, had a striking bald head at the time and <laughs> just needed some time just to sort of recover to a large yeah, degree. Definitely. And I mean, there's always this thing of after that point when you're told that there's no longer any signs of cancer, you it's, the, it, it's kind of in a weird way the first time that everything hits you because... Mm when you go into that sort of attack mode of, I need to deal with this, I need to get on with it, uh, I need to know about dietary plans, I need to know about my medication, I need to know about the disease, and you kind of go into that fight fight mode. Um, yeah. It's after that that you then sit back and go, holy crap, that all happened. Um, and yeah, I went through a couple of months of like kind of processing it and I did, I did have a sort of bout of depression after it because of just when you go that high with the sort of survivorship feeling, you do crash mm-hmm. back down. Um, so I sort of got through all of that and then come the autumn, yeah, I just got on with life. Um, I decided I wasn't going to go back to university. I went to see a recruitment agency in the city, uh, still in Aberdeen, and was like, oh, look, I'm looking for a job. I don't know what I'm qualified for. Can you get me temp work? And they were like, um, come and work for us. And <laughs> that was the start of my now uh, almost 15-year career in recruitment. Um, yeah. wow. I mean, most, pe- most people say that you know nobody goes into recruitment by design, but that is how I fell into it. Yeah, yeah so that's... It's, it's uh, got a big, big respect for that. So that's fair play to you. So you go to your, you know, mid mid twenties. I'm guessing you was given the proper all clear, and then yeah. headed into your late twenties. What was, what was, was it just the, the your recruitment job for those years? And well, so after a couple of years in Aberdeen, um, my girlfriend and I broken up, and I moved down to Edinburgh. Um, I was. <laughs> Been in Edinburgh for about two years when I am quite accident prone. I was crossing a zebra junction in Edinburgh and mm. got hit by a car and completely totaled my ankle. So like my ankle was like my leg was jackknifed at my ankle and wow. like my foot was looking back at me. So I I uh, my left ankle is now pr- well pretty much all metalwork. So I've got a plate. Uh, five bolts and two pins uh, in my left ankle, which is in effect now my ankle. Mm. Um, so that was an interesting period of kind of recovering from that. Um, my favourite moment had to be when my leg, I was in the hospital and my leg was still kind of folded over. And this doctor came in and said to me, All right, I'm going to give you this drug. You're not going to remember the next two hours, but we need you to be conscious uh as we do this but you're not going to want to remember the pain all right so the the next thing i sort of remember 
is this doctor walking back in. He's got like a bloody nose and he's got a cotton bud shoved <laughs> up his nose. I'm like, what happened to you? And he just looked at me and went, you don't remember, do you? I'm like, well, no. He said, as I was resetting your left leg, you kicked me in the face with your right leg. <laughs> <laughs> I did point out to him that that's kind of on him. Like, I mean, I think logically they should have restrained my right leg for that reason, but clearly he didn't. And apparently I just punted him in the face. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that took a few months to kind of literally get back up on my feet, um, physio, rehab and everything else. But, well, I mean, I, I didn't really feel like that big a challenge in a way. It was just something that happened. And I don't even look back at it now as a sort of, I mean, it wasn't great, obviously, but I don't kind of not seeing it no i think just just overshadowed by other things possibly so yeah you know suppose i suppose your, your previous fight with cancer has just you know made you that bit stronger and something like that's kind of just shrug it off kind of thing yeah largely so yeah that was kind of me getting through my 20s and then hit the the magic age of 30 um yeah. i decided at that point i'd gotten quite involved in different works with the Teenage Cancer Trust. So I decided to throw a massive 30th birthday party uh, to raise money for the Teenage Cancer Trust. So I threw a massive uh, Great Gatsby themed party in Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> being a bit of a foodie around town in Edinburgh, I had good connections with lots of restaurants and businesses. So I had the most ridiculous list of prizes. Um, for the raffle and auction and raised about five thousand pounds wow, um, it was phenomenal it was such a good night and it was in this beautiful venue in edinburgh um mm. called the gilly do and i uh i kind of I'm, I'm quite i'm one of those people who kind of thinks if you don't ask you don't get so i yeah. reached out to this um kind of well, Gatsby era style band um, who did the sort of, you know, white jacket suits sort of thing with the, you know, the, did all that sort of music whose mm. regular gig was playing on the Royal York Britannia. And I just reached out to him and said, I'm doing this fundraiser. It's in Edinburgh, blah, blah. I can't really pay you. And they just replied saying, if you cover our costs, we'll come up and do it. I was like, oh, amazing. Um, <laughs> so they were phenomenal. And... Yeah. It was just, yeah, it was the best way to mark turning 30. Um, 100%. I mean, because I actually, it was a Saturday night and I turned 30 at midnight. And because I was sort of doing the raffle and organizing everything, I stayed sober-ish, I would say, up until midnight. And then when it turned midnight, it was actually my birthday. I then got straight on the shots. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a, a tray of Jaeger bombs awaiting me. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was one of those. But no, it was just a fantastic way to mark turning 30. You know, family, friends, uh, friends of my parents, uh, well, my mum. Hmm. And uh, yeah. so you were saying you did the, the yeah, you had the yeah, 30th birthday with the Teenage Cancer Trust and you raised £5,000, which is incredible. What was so from, from then on, what was your what was your general life like, I suppose, for the next? Yeah, so years? I mean. After turning 30, um, I was still living in Edinburgh, but around that time, um, my employer was one of the big American banks, asked me, well, told me that my job was moving to London 
and asked me would I like to come with my job. So I moved to London um, just a few weeks after my 30th birthday, so just over six years ago now, and packed my bags, packed up my flat in Edinburgh, took as much stuff back to my mum's as I could, and then literally from Edinburgh, I had to find a flat or a house share in London. I found this house share in Marylebone um, with six other people, <laughs> and just got on a train one Sunday morning with three suitcases and a rucksack and moved to London. Didn't even know where it was. Um, had an address, got to King's Cross, got in a taxi and turned up at the house, met my housemates and <laughs> that, that was moving to London. Um, and, you know, literally I'd moved on a Sunday and I had to be at work on the Monday morning in Kerry Wharf. And... From there, mm. you know, I think a lot of people when you move to London find it find it really hard because I mean, you know, Edinburgh is a city, but London is just this whole other beast. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And, you know, I think even now when I come back into London, you get off at King's Cross, you feel as if you've landed on a different planet. Uh <laughs> less so at the moment, it's got to be said, but in you know, you know, uh, yeah. before Corona times and you know, this year one was really hard. Um, I definitely sunk back a little bit into depression to a certain degree. Uh, missing mm. home, missing friends. I mean, as much as I had some friends down here, you just feel really disconnected because, you know, in Edinburgh, you know, your friends live like five minutes away, 10 minutes away, 15 minutes at max. Uh, in yeah. London, if you, you know, if you're, closest friend lives 20 minutes away that's pretty good um uh, you know <laughs> so it's it's a totally different thing and it definitely took me a long time to adjust to that and the shared house helped you know i had some really nice uh housemates uh i was i'm dutch but i mean i was the only british-ish person in the house um a couple of french mm. girls an italian girl two belgian guys and a french guy um, with one kitchen and one living room, it was pretty interesting at times. But it was it was good. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, kind of what one of the things we were talking about earlier. It forced you to kind of put yourself out there a bit, you know, and yeah, definitely just sort of get on with it. And it was, you know, having worked for the same employer, even if it was from Edinburgh, did help because it meant that I knew most of the people I was going to be working with. So. I had sort of pre-existing mm. relationships with some of them and it was people who I'd always been quite friendly with over the phone that then became friends I could go for a beer with after work, um, which was, you know, that was good. So mm. I suppose and living with people from, you know, around Europe kind of made you learn about people's cultures and way of life. Yeah, I to suppose. a certain degree. I mean, I guess... Throughout my life, I mean, I was lucky as a kid that we went on, you know, holidays to France in the summer. Um, yeah. Did a couple of skiing holidays here and there in France and whatever else. So I had a decent amount of exposure to that. Um, but at mm. the same time, yeah, living with people from different countries definitely is is different to just meeting them on holiday. I put it that way. Um, yeah. You know, it became the you know you get into a routine of you know we'd have a 
um, a house Sunday roast every couple of weeks on a Sunday. We'd all sort of chip in for food and have a, you know, get around the dining table and have a big meal together and stuff like that. And it was nice because it did help with the sort of settling into London element. Um, like most people, you know, I spent that first year in Marlebone because it was super central and easy to get to work. And then, like yeah. a lot of people, they either drift north of the river or south of the river. Um, I drifted southwest down to Clapham and eventually down to where I am now in Balham. And I mean, the flat I'm in now, which I've been in since February, is, is actually the first time I've lived alone in London. Um, just being, mm. you know, you get to an age and you get to a point where you just want your own space. You know, you, you don't want to have to deal yeah. with people yeah. and. Oh, can you can you do your dishes, please? Uh, yeah, can, <laughs> you know, it's just it gets it gets a place where you're just like, no, 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 I'm not ready. I don't need that anymore. I just want to do yeah. what I want to do when I want to do it. And I suppose yeah, we'll get to it later on. But I suppose it's, you took that you took that challenge on at probably the most challenging point of your life. Oh, so just you know, yeah, hundred percent. So obviously working and living with those with me. Was that the same for the next uh, couple of years, few years, or did you kind yeah, of yeah? So I mean, it was different people, but same idea. So um, when I moved to Clapham, I was sharing with uh, a friend of my cousin's from back home, and then that didn't work out. It would be fair to say. So I moved down to Balham and lived in a shared house in Balham. Uh, it was four of us for about two and a bit years, and then had a little stint. Uh, still south of the river, but kind of southeast London and Bermondsey, living with a friend from back yeah. home for about a year and a half. And then when we were moving out of there, I kind of came back to Balham. But that was sort of around the time when I was starting to think that uh, I need my own place. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a grown man and I, I just don't want to have to worry about if someone's going to get upset that I left a tea bag in the sink. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the that's that's that kind of problem, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So, right. so, so if you fast fast forward to twenty nineteen, um, August twenty nineteen, to be more specific, and I think another big and significant thing happened. Yeah. In your life. So through July and August um, twenty nineteen, my eyesight started deteriorating pretty quickly. Um, Started out a little bit earlier in the year than that, where I just started getting this sort of white spotting in my eyesight. Um, I went mm. to optometrists who told me it was just stress and exhaustion uh, from working too hard. And then it went from a little bit of just an annoyance to by the end of July, start of August, I couldn't leave uh, my flat on my own. And wow. I got kind of over a couple of days it got particularly noticeably worse and I actually ended up phoning an ambulance and getting taken to um, St George's Hospital which is one of my nearest hospitals but has a Murfield's Eye Clinic in it as well and the the guy there kind of evaluated my eyes because your eyes are perfectly healthy and he then, yeah. I was getting an NHS referral to neural ophthalmology, but I mean, that was 
middle of August and on the NHS, I wasn't going to be able to get an appointment for neuro-ophthalmology until the 4th of November, which is just insane. Wow. I mean, I was lucky yeah. that my employer had private medical, so I started finding out who the good neuro-ophthalmologists were. Uh, I found out about one on Harley Street. I called her office. I managed to get an appointment the next day. Um, mm. She evaluated me and immediately said, you need a brain scan, and you need a brain scan now. Wow. So off I went, um, got the CT scan done, and I was literally in the taxi home from the hospital from having had the CT scan. And mm. the neuro-ophthalmologist called me and said, can I talk to you? I was like, yeah. I said, well, she was like, where are you? Oh, I'm in a taxi. She said, oh, I'll, I'll phone you later. I said, no, no, just, just tell me. I, you know, yeah. I don't need the anxiety of waiting for this. Just, just tell me. Um, yeah, yeah. She told me I had what, on face value, appeared to be a type one meningioma, and the meningioma was wrapped around the bottom of my pituitary gland and then growing into the space at the front of my brain. Um basically pressing onto the base of the optic nerve. So was basically mm. taking out that center point where the right and left optic nerves come together. And that pressure on the optic nerve, which was what was uh is what was causing the blurriness in my eyesight. So she immediately referred me to um an encrymologist who's a specialist for the pituitary gland. And a colleague of hers who was an incredibly good neurosurgeon. And at that point, they're being very non-specific, but they're saying, look, you need brain surgery uh, as quickly as we can get you in. Um, yeah. We don't know what's going to happen when we relieve the pressure from the optic nerve. Um, there may be some improvement. There may not. We don't know. And yeah. by... I was, I was planned to be in surgery for then, we'd have been the start of the second week of September. I then had to get delayed because as I went in for my, like prior to that sort of surgery, you basically get like a sort of health checkup, you know, they do a cardiogram and all that sort of thing. And hmm. something popped up on the cardio on the like the heart scan that they weren't happy with basically so they said you need to see a cardiologist i was like oh brilliant <laughs> just that's just what i need just what you nice. need that's, yeah. that's great so <laughs> i went and saw a cardiologist and it turned out it was nothing it was literally there was some sort of misfiring electrode or something on the outside um mm -hmm. and this sort of membrane around my heart there was nothing not a heart problem it was nothing but that then just because that was a really yeah well it was a massive relief but it was just so frustrating because it then just delayed the, yeah. the brain surgery a little bit further and my neurosurgeon was like look i can i can do the surgery in uh the royal london hospital or i can do it privately depending on what you want and i just turned around and said well what would you feel more comfortable with i said it's okay she's like can i be honest I said, yeah be honest ah uh, it would be a lot better if we can do it in the private hospital. I was like, brilliant. I mean, mm. I'm going in for brain surgery. 
you're my brain surgeon. I want you to feel as comfortable <laughs> as possible. I mean, literally. So, yeah. I mean, um, I went into the London Bridge Hospital, which is a phenomenal private facility. And, you know, went in in the morning of the surgery. Uh, my uh, neurosurgeon, uh, Dimitrios Paraskopoulos, comes in to redo the sort of pre pre theater checks and yeah. I think one of the biggest things I'd been freaking out about was I didn't really know what a craniotomy involved. Like I was sort of like half envisaging that they're gonna like cut like you know the top of my head off basically. You know they're gonna like zoom <laughs> all the way around and then you know pop the top off <laughs> sort of thing. I I had no idea what it meant. And my friends were like, do you want to know? I was like, no, I, I, don't, I don't really want to think about it. And yeah. it was in that pre-theater, pre-surgery bit where I sort of then figured it out where uh, my surgeon was basically saying, we're going to prepare for a right-sided craniotomy, but I also want to be prepared that we might need to also do a left-sided craniotomy. And I was like, okay. Um, and he then basically just came and drew, like, took a pen and just drew on my head. <laughs> I was like, oh, so that's where it's going then. Okay, cool. <laughs> and it was then one of those things where it's like, here are the risks. Risk of death. Risk of, the, you know, it's it's pretty grim reading. Um, yeah. Particularly with brain surgery, it was all sorts of things of um, potential risk of loss, uh, potential loss of sense of uh, taste and smell, potential loss of motor skills, language skills. Because, because you know they're poking around anywhere on the brain. Um, there's a great there's a great level of unpredictability about what can happen. Um, yeah. and, you know, it was forecasted to be a six and a half hour surgery. It eventually mm. went on for nine and a half hours. Wow. Um, I think my mum was having kittens by this point. I would imagine, but I mean. <laughs> It's one of the advantages of when you're the one having surgery is you don't really remember it. Uh, I mean, all I really remember is, well, remember look at the last things I remember being wheeled down to surgery and then you're in the sort of um, anesthesiologist's little room before you go into theatre. And then mm. the, the whole team came up to me, like introduced themselves. Oh, I'm the laser technician. I'm the <laughs> laser technician's assistant. I'm your plastic surgeon. I'm their assistant. I'm this part. There was a lot of people there. It's like a, a whole cast in it. Oh, my word. So <laughs> many people. <laughs> then just they were like, the uh, anesthesiologist was like, so what's your favorite drink? I was like, gin. Oh, out. And, <laughs> you know, the next thing I remember uh, is waking up in recovery and I can hear my mom's voice and one of my best friends who stayed with my mom through the surgery. Yeah. And then my surgeon just being in my face going, it went very well. I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and, you know, with it being brain surgery, you know, I was booked in to be in intensive care for three to five days. I kind of subsequently found out that the nurses had been preparing for me for like about a week they were expecting me to come up from surgery ventilated I was going to need minute by minute care for a few yeah. days to get me through it um, apparently I got wheeled onto the ward having come out of surgery about 11 p.m mm. I got wheeled onto the ward about 2 30 3 a.m mm. singing at the top of my lungs which <laughs> I 
do not remember. Uh, the nurses the next day were like, so you like Jerry Cinnamon? I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, you were singing that song, Cantor. I'm like, oh, uh, sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I sort of came up, started coming around about four or five in the morning and, you know, I was demanding a cup of tea, but they were all they could do for about an hour was sponge water into my mouth with these little chewable sponges. Um <laughs> And within an hour and a half, you know, my oxygen levels had perked up. I was mm. kind of coming, recovering much faster than they expected. And their predicted breakfast of giving me Rice Krispies, that went out the window. I was like, no, 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 no. Bacon roll, <laughs> cup of tea, yogurt, let's go. Come on. <laughs> um, and like the this kind of staff nurse was like, oh, well, we need to talk to your specialist about what you're allowed. And I could hear him down the corridor. I was like, Demetrius. And he comes up and goes, yes, yes, what, what is it? It's like, oh, they want to know what, if I'm allowed to have full breakfast. It was like, he can, whatever he wants to eat, he can eat. I was like, yes, bring it. Good. Um, it's what you want. Exactly. So no, spent, it took me, you know, a couple hours to then figure out kind of where, you know, kind of what condition I was in. I mean, I literally had effectively a helmet on my head, which was holding mm. my head together. Uh, I had a drain, like a pipe, like a yeah, like a pipe basically coming out the top of my head, which was draining uh, fluid from the surgical area, and that was horrendously uncomfortable having this hose pipe coming out your head. Um, although one of the few benefits, I have to say, about seven in the morning, I said to the nurse, oh, nurse "I really need to go for a pee," and she went, "Oh, you've got a catheter." I was like, oh, awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, you know, that was, that was, that was good. It was kind of like, oh, excellent. <laughs> Nothing to worry. And anyone's think that would be anyone's reaction, especially if you just came out of brain surgery and you think, just, just stay there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's so, so judging by, was, was the brain surgery or the tumor itself ever life-threatening or was it just the actual senses that were under threat? I mean... It could have been, depending on where it grew. So, I mean, I'm lucky and unlucky that the tumour started at like at the root underneath the pituitary gland, grew over the front of it, and then into the space between the brain. So, mm. I mean, it could have then kind of grown in the opposite direction and pressed further into a different nerve centre in the brain, which could have done different kinds of damage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was about three centimetres big which if you imagine like in that crevice in your brain, it's pretty big. Pretty big, yeah. Um, and they were able to take out I mean, about 97% of it um, during the surgery. And that was, I mean, regarded as incredibly successful. And I know my surgeon was very confident coming out of it that he'd managed to do it without... Um, doing any sort of well impacting anything else which was the case like yeah i am really lucky to have had that sort of brain tumor um have had it removed successfully and not had any other side effects you know whether it would be a loss i mean the one that really worried me was loss of losing my sense of smell and taste but that that one really had me kind of wigged out a little bit to be honest um Mm. Because, I don't know, like, when my eyesight went, I sort of accepted that, oh, it's gone. <laughs> Can't really change that. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but the idea of losing other senses additionally that that really sort of yeah that was a massive worry so yeah coming out of surgery and even eating a no sorry drinking a fairly terrible cup of tea and tasting it was like oh that's good i can i can i can taste that it's terrible that's fine <laughs> so when coming out of all the days following surgery and everything is that straight away you had no eyesight so it's deteriorated slowly over time in terms of the residual eyesight that I still had at that point because, I mean, basically the, the, the issue I have is atrophy of the optic nerve. Yeah. So the light sensors in my eyes and my brain are still working. So, you know, generally what I see on an average day is just white fuzz in front of my eyes, um, yeah. which can make it difficult to sleep at night sometimes. But um the the bit of eyesight that i did have has slowly sort of disappeared i mean you know after the surgery i could still sort of make out shapes of people and things like that um mm. i could make out uh normally colors and tv screens if it was blues and things like that i could sort of see it yeah um that's pretty much gone now um but I can still, like, if something's moving in front of my face, I know something's moving in front of my face. You yeah. know what I mean? I okay. can sort of, like, tell that something is there. Mm. Um, and in my extreme periphery on the left-hand side of my weaker eye, there's still something going on there. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but there's something there. But, I mean... I guess, in a way, unfortunate because my eye condition is, well, it's a nerve condition, technically yeah. speaking. You know, it's, it's atrophy of a nerve. So with the, I mean, my neuro-ophthalmologist has been as bullshy to say is that I will see again. Wow. Um, there's a, a new stem cell treatment that you might have heard about coming through. Uh, where they've been able to break down stem cells to recreate um, the same cells that exist in the optic nerve. And there's in the initial human trials have been incredibly successful. Um, obviously, now I need to go through a lot more trials and see what side effects there might be and whatever else. But there's, there's a, a fair to good chance that when that comes to pass, that that may be able to restore some, if not most of my eyesight. So yeah. I guess I hold on to that hope to a certain degree. Yeah, um, don't blame you. But at the same time, it just, you know, like ever, I've just been, like I did when I got cancer, I just get on with it. Like, right, can't do that now. What what can yeah. I do? You know, you just, my phrase has always been control the controllables, right? So 100%. I can't, I can't control that. I can't see. So, all right, fine. Don't worry about it. Like, move on. Figure something else out. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm one hundred percent with you on that one. So, um, what what was life like? Home life and your social life like after all of that and losing, you know, slowly losing your eyesight. Did it was it damaged in any way, or did you kind of just treat it like nothing happened? <laughs> um. So I see. Guess there's like pre-surgery and post-surgery so pre-surgery um it's kind of the same still just kind of going to the pub with friends and um getting out and about just with help um with people the the surgery took a huge amount out of me physically i mean 
I was shattered, like physically, emotionally, for a couple of months. So after I got out of hospital, so I was in hospital for five days in the end. Um, it was meant to be up to 10, but after five, they were like, you can go home. Um, I think the point in which I started demanding to be sent outside for a cigarette was the point that they were like, <laughs> go home. <laughs> um, so kind of went back to my flat in uh, London for a few days and then mum and I got the train back to Scotland sort of end of, middle of the second week of October mm. and I didn't didn't really talk because at this point I was still getting used to being blind I hadn't learned voiceover controls yet yeah so I, I hadn't been on social media for months uh, at that point I wasn't really talking to anyone couldn't use WhatsApp, couldn't use Twitter, Facebook. So I was, for about a month at least, I was pretty much just asleep or sleeping or napping or just lying on my bed. I suppose the, really world just, the world just kind of stopped for you, really, I suppose. And you don't really know. Obviously, you have you had TV and stuff like that. But in terms of what you were used to, it just kind of just went. Oh, completely. I mean, at this point, I hadn't even because I hadn't figured out voiceover on my iPad. So um, I was just like literally could get my app, my iPad to open Netflix and then would just stab around at the screen and like hope something would start playing. <laughs> so you end up watching things you would never otherwise have watched, uh, which could be good sometimes, but it was often yeah. terrible. Uh, and, you know, I think October... In November, I just, yeah, I shut myself off to a certain degree in a good and in a bad way. I mean, there was a mm. bit of me that just said to myself, I need to let myself rest. I need to recover because that took so much out of me, you know, going through the surgery. And yeah, it was then, that was the sort of period when I then sort of came to terms to a certain degree with the fact that, well, I'm now blind. That's yeah. That's where I'm at, and think that the changing point or the turning point to a certain degree was uh, a really good friend of mine. She was in Newcastle for work uh, on a Friday, so he'd said, "Could she come up? Um, she, she's that far north already. Could she come up for the weekend?" And she came up. It was the end of November, and she came up for the weekend and. You know, we went out for the day to Edinburgh for a few drinks and stuff and went out for dinner with my mum and things. And that was like, it's where I kind of woke up again to a certain mm. degree. And I then started to kind of said to myself, right, got to figure out voiceover. I've got to start getting stuff sorted. And yeah. it was then, that was kind of a week later, it was sort of the first time I reached out to the RNIB. Um and then got set up to do technology training with um, the tech team on voiceover, how that works. And things from there started to change pretty quickly. I mean, you know, voiceover is not complicated, but no. if you don't know how to use it <laughs> or how to turn it on, it's super yeah. complicated. Um, and, you know, a couple of lessons on that. And all of a sudden I was back on back on Facebook, I could use WhatsApp, I was in touch with my friends again. Um, really bad, isn't it? It's what it's, what it's Oh, gives you so much, right? Yeah. Um, I can relate on that one. Oh, it was, it was incredible. And 
you know, that that started to help me build back some confidence. And then as I got into the new year, I started um, going back on Twitter and I started searching for, just to be honest, I just started looking for blind people on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, you start to find a few of, you know, the pseudo blind community celebrities. Like we all know who they are. There's, who, there's a couple, yeah. Yeah, right. Who have the massive followings. Um, yeah. And, you know, there was a couple of people who were really fantastic. Um, when I found them, actually one of them I initially found on through Instagram, weirdly. Mm. I think she saw a few hashtags or found me through a couple of hashtags I'd used and sent me a message saying, if you ever need help, just reach out. And she then pointed me in the direction of a few people on Twitter you know, where you follow five, you end up following 15, you end up following 50, and before you know it, your timeline is pretty hashtag disability Twitter-centric. And it's, I mean, that, I cannot say how much that's given me in terms of support, in terms of meeting people, getting to know people, Mm. finding people who get it. And it's not a critique of you, my friends, at all. Um... I mean, me having spent all of my life, other than the last twelve months, completely living without any disability. Yeah, I I didn't have disabled friends. Nah. You know, it's not that I would have a problem if I did or didn't, but I just had never come across people in my social circles that lived with a, a disability, and it was really hard for them to kind of comprehend it. And I, you feel sometimes bad for kind of moaning about something that they just they don't see it as a problem. Yeah. Or yeah. when you say to them, this has annoyed me, they give you very, not intentionally, but indirectly condescending responses of, oh, well, have you done that? It's like, no, I hadn't thought of that. You know, yeah. with the most obvious sort of replies. And, you know, being able to just kind of chat where people who are living the same experience go, yeah, that is super annoying, isn't it? Just helps you feel a bit validated as to the problems that you're facing so it's it's, it's the, the fact that they they get it don't they as soon as you yeah. start talking to them they they get it's because it, i think for a lot of people like me and you I think it's the small things that make a big difference mm. and i think speaking to someone who's say fully sighted and you know walking down the road to your local corner shop you know obviously if you, if you don't use a cane for like that you can't do that by yourself whereas someone who has full vision will just tell every grandchild and be like yeah okay i'll see you in a sec but we, I don't know about you, but I think we get frustrated that we can't just do those simple things in life oh. as easy as we like to. I mean, this, I mean, well, I think I told you, I mean, I've, I'm only about six or seven lessons into my long cane training. Mm. And I've already got that sort of glimmer of hope or light at the end of the tunnel of like being able to just get to the coffee shop at the top of my road on my own. Yeah. Because I just miss, uh, sometimes on a nice Sunday morning, just going for a wee walk, sitting outside a coffee shop, having a nice coffee, a croissant, and for me personally, a cigarette, and just, like, just doing that. And I don't know about you, but for me, lockdown, as much as it's been horrendous for the world, lockdown kind of made that easier. um, Mm. Because everybody sort of, the rest of the world for the first time in a way had to learn that same lesson in a way and 
I was trying to explain to a couple friends of mine recently who I just, they did not get it, that the world coming out of lockdown has actually been harder. Because you start, your friends start, you know, like, oh, I went for a walk today, we're doing this, we're going to the beach, we're doing that, you know, whatever it might be. And I'm still in a place where I am still in my own personal lockdown. Like, unless friends, you know, are coming around to get me or I'm going somewhere which is a door-to-door sort of thing, I'm still trapped. I still spend 90% of my week in my flat. Yeah. Um, because I don't have that level of uh, independence yet. And, you know, I can see how that's going to come with the cane and I've got a long way to go with that. But, you know, that starting to like crossing the road for the first time, like with the during my training last week and feeling confident. Yeah, my, you know, my social worker was there, but I did it myself and like approaching the road. Figuring out what's in front of me, listening, blah, blah, mm-hmm. getting myself across there, safely across a junction. Felt like a massive step forward. Yeah. When I... uh, yeah. So what, what would you say, uh, you, you generally you say you've had, what, six, seven sessions of that? How, how would you say that's been overall for you and the learning curves you've, you've, you've stuck? I've still got a long way to go. Mm. Um. It's amazing how things that in week two seemed really difficult are now just sort of instinctively do. Yeah. Um, you know, like following a cur- using a curb to follow a path sort of thing, or um, you know, navigating myself from out in my building. Like I used to say to friends, "Oh, can you meet me at the lifts in my building?" Because I can't find the door. Yeah. I can now very confidently. Obviously, get to the left, go down, leave my building on my own, and then navigate my way up to the top of the building's driveway to the main path. Yeah, and that see that seems to me now really easy. Whereas a month ago, no chance. Yeah, absolutely no chance. Yeah, um, I can I can relate on that one. So, I mean, you I seen I seen a few things on your on your Twitter. You seem to be a big uh, food fan. I guess yeah. you can say it. Um, is that something that's came? It, it became a big interest since you've lost that, or have you always had that? So, food, food for me has always been. I mean, obviously, other than uh, my humble beginnings as a student uh, being <laughs> somewhat terrible, yeah. I think growing up at home, you know, food was a big part of life. You know, at six p.m. every day dinner table, Saturday morning dinner table, breakfast, you know, cooked breakfast, croissants, yeah. all that was a, a feature of my childhood. So then I got older. I mean, my like through my uni years, cooking became a way to impress women, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> but also it's just something I really enjoyed. And through my 20s, I kind of went from being a pretty basic cook to, I'd say, a very competent cook. Um, I had a few stabs at uh, trying to make it onto MasterChef. Uh, okay. got to the final final editions a couple of times uh, just missed out once or twice which was a bit frustrating just a bit uh, yeah and you know going to food markets getting great produce and doing stuff like that was just something I, I always loved and I think going blind I had resigned myself to the thought that I was never going to cook again 
Mm. Uh, couldn't do it. Not for me anymore. I can't do it. So even the flat that I moved into, I mean, the kitchen in this flat is effectively a cupboard. Um, you know, it's got a two hob induction plate, which I can't use because I don't have bump-ons for it yet. Uh, and I sort of started to think to myself, well, I'm just going to eat ready meals and tinned food and that's just going to be life. And lockdown, lockdown made me really think about things. And not just because I couldn't get most of what I wanted on Uber Eats anymore or on Deliveroo, um, I couldn't get any food anymore. I couldn't mm. get shopping. So I I bought myself a George Foreman grill, uh, which is still the, the heartbeat of a lot of my cooking, or most of my cooking, has got to be said. And I found, I mean, I don't know about you, but well, for me living on my own and not really having anyone nearby, uh, all of a sudden, a few weeks in, I was in a place where I couldn't get food, run out of food, and it was a local getting being like back active on social media. I found a cafe nearby that was now doing fruit and veg box deliveries. Um, mm-hmm. Managed to get on a Sunday. I was end up texting with the owner. He said, "Oh well, look, uh, we'll bring the fruit and veg box up to you and just leave cash outside the door." I said, "Well, I, I don't have any cash, but I can't. You know, it's fine. You know, come tomorrow and I'll I'll transfer the money to you once the banks are open." He yeah. said to me. Well, do you need the food today? I was like, well, yeah. Well, don't worry about it. We'll bring the box today. Just get us get us paid when you can. Um, and I found one of the, like, a really well-known chain of London butchers. Uh, I was tweeting them, and they were like, look, if you're blind, you can't use the website. Just phone us. We'll sort it all out for you. Same mm. day, um, I got a delivery from the butcher, from the greengrocer, and I then started... Uh, my new lockdown hobby became my Instagram, my new Instagram feed, which was the the underscore blind underscore foodie. And mm-hmm. uh, it was sort of multi-purpose. So part of it was to post videos about what it's like living with being blind in lockdown. And yeah. part of it was to go back to posting what I'm sure are pretty terrible photos at times. <laughs> Uh, of my attempts at cooking. And, you know, it's progressed from just, say, cooking a bit of steak on the grill and microwaving some mashed potato to trying to do some fairly complex dishes through the medium of a George Foreman. And that's given me so much confidence back about, you know, the fact I can cook, I can make different dishes just even on the grill and being able to enjoy food again that I'm making for myself has been, it's brought something back into my life that I thought I'd lost. And that's been really positive in a lot of ways for me. Mm. So would you say that's halfway through lockdown? So it's been like your getaway kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cooking, with like, like, you know, before I lost my sight, cooking was always like how I decompressed. Yeah. You know, end of the day, 20 minutes, shopping, preparing a meal, that was like how I relaxed. It was sort of my therapy. So, you know, cooking definitely takes a lot more focus at the moment. And I'd say having that to focus on and putting my energy into that definitely occupied a good chunk of my time in a really positive way. Mm. So definitely was a big part of getting me through the lockdown experience. Yeah, Yeah, I can imagine that. So 
obviously we're coming sort of coming to the end of lockdown, ain't we? And things are slowly opening. How mm. how are you finding like this gradual ease of lockdown? It's difficult because for me personally, the the big difference obviously is that despite the fact the government still haven't issued any guidelines on guiding for people who are not in a bubble or yeah. and live alone. Uh, friends are now willing to come and get me and go and do things. So that's, you know, having human contact again has definitely been a massive help emotionally <laughs> and just being able to get back to doing some things that feel normal. Yeah. But I guess the big thing now is, you know, is worrying a lot about what things that have gotten better might now get worse again um, in terms of accessibility to a certain degree Mm. and, you know, just starting to figure out what the new world is going to be like and what added challenges that might bring. Yeah. I don't know if you probably see like these things on social media, you know, the government saying they're widened, widened pavements and these lines in shops might be permanent and, Everything like that, you know, all these markings, everything. You think that's been that's been that's been thought out, but not with disabled people as a whole in mind, and it it, it just frustrates you, doesn't it? You think there's there's just small things that they could just implement that make things like me and you and people in wheelchairs or you know someone with a guide dog make it that bit more easy or and make us more comfortable. I think we are often the the last to be thought of despite the the sheer number of us that are out there you know i mean the what is it something like is it 19 percent of the uk population live with a disability um but incredibly we are very rarely uh anywhere near the top of the list in terms of who's considered when they're making these decisions and i think there's going to be a lot of challenges whether it's you know these cycle lanes which are like blocking off parts of the road and how that might impact taxi drop-offs or taxi pickups. Um, the number of novice cyclists belting along roads without really looking or knowing what they're yeah. doing. The Obviously, the really well-publicized concerns around these e-scooters and stuff like that on pavements. Um, yeah. Feels as if there's going to be a whole load of new obstacles for us to overcome, but... I think what's really important, and I think we see more and more of it now, are people from our community or different parts of our community making their voices heard. Yeah. You know, kind of kicking politicians, getting involved in high-level advocacy, forcing their way onto these committees that make these decisions so that, you know, our problems are factored into the decisions that are made. Yeah, I think it needs... It's all good having, you know, there's politicians and there's activists out there who are maybe who are non-disabled and you know might try and do the best for the disabled community. But I think having someone on that board or you know on that panel that lives through it and knows the knows the struggles is important because they can then say to people who are non-disabled, look, this is this is how I deal with things. This is what I struggle with. This is how you can you can solve it. It's invaluable. Yeah, And I think if you get the right people who have the right networks across the broader community as well, I think what's really important is people who can advocate and say, okay, understand this problem. The person we need to ask for advice on this is this person because I know that that's 
part of their lived experience because you know I think you know you, I've now gone to speak to a few accessibility officers of different businesses who might have a disability or have no disability mm. who think that speaking for the inverted commas disabled community is some one size fits all answer yeah. and it just isn't no. you know even you know you and I might have fairly similar challenges on one level but could have completely different perspectives on what we need and, and, you know yeah it's it's one of those things where it's yeah i'd agree not one, one size definitely doesn't fit all so yeah. you come to now are, are you are you getting out more now with friends and just kind of going on because i think the thing the problem with lockdown you know for me i'm kind of confident about the whole thing but it's then having people who are confident in themselves to then go out and kind of throw social distancing out of the window and just go out with well, yeah, that's that's one of the struggles I think I'm finding. Oh yeah. I mean I've got some friends who are still like, we need to stay two meters apart. <laughs> um well I've got I you know I don't know if you heard of them, but I bought a ramble tag for that reason. Um the ramble tag guidance aids. So I've got a couple of their devices and that's meant that friends who are a bit more worried about guiding me can have like basically hold on to a handle that I strapped to myself so they can I've seen that they have them in place at um Birmingham New Street Station they they've yeah. got the assistance guys so yeah they are yeah um, they're they're decent little yeah well, it's, a wee Scottish, it's a wee Scottish company and uh, they're, they're good eggs and it's it's just it's quite a kind of you know, a simple solution to a simple problem in a way. Uh, but no, to answer the question, you know, I've got some really good friends who I've been able to sort of spend time with. Like, um, you know, the other night I was over at a friend's for dinner and it just, you know, it feels really nice just to be in someone's house. And, you know, I've her son's eight years old and yeah, I've known him most of his life. And, you know, he's coming up and going, yeah, again, are you going to tickle me? I'm like, maybe, <laughs> who knows? And, you know, just being able to do things that we did, you know, in the before Corona times yeah. is... That crazy world. It's, it's so invaluable though, right? I mean, you know, Friday weekend past, me and one of my mates, we were just in our favourite beer garden, sitting outside, having a few drinks and... The only difference noticeable was, well, to me, was that we got table service. Um, so that <laughs> feels like feels like a weird positive in yeah. a way, uh, <laughs> you know, because obviously I can't see that people are like they're all wearing masks. But yeah. I mean, you know, to me, it's just like, oh, we're in the pub and we get table service. I like it. Uh, <laughs> and it's you know being around that sort of buzz, just you know, after all of those months of nothing, does make a real big difference mm. what what would you say over the next few months is that the one thing you're looking forward to most say saying in hypothetical situation there we go what you know everything opens no problem what is the one thing that you're kind of looking forward to most oh, that's a good question i think hypothetically i'm going on holiday in the middle of october um to turkey so mm. definitely looking forward to that i would say and towards the end of september i um as stands going for lunch in a restaurant i have all dreamed of eating in for 
probably the last 10 years. Mm. Um, <laughs> one of the sort of uh, post-corona oddities of all these restaurants shutting down is that it was you could actually get tables in the best restaurants in the city for the first time ever. Um, so, you know, you've got to look at the benefits of uh, what lockdown has brought us. And yeah. certainly those things, I mean, you know, I'd love to get back to a gig at some point, um, hypothetically, and get back to a football match. You know, that'd yeah. be pretty special. Yeah. But I'm with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I've... Um... Enjoyed speaking to you. It's been a, a, a thank you for you know telling your story and being so open about everything. It's, it's you've you you know you the things you've gone through and some people just kind of you know, it doesn't come to people's minds, does it? They don't kind of just brush it off and think, yeah, it won't happen to me. So for you know for someone like you to have what you went through in your early years and then in the past twelve to eighteen months and come out, you know, still positive and just smashing things, just going straight ahead of it. I've got. Big respect for you, man. No, thank you, bud. I mean, it's, you know, people always kind of ask, oh, you know, do, do you mind talking about it? I'm like, well, yeah, I don't mind. I mean, I mean I'm the me, same people will ask me, like, do you mind talking? It's like, yeah, just, just go for it. Like, you, you think if, if you don't tell someone the full story, they're not going to fully understand you as a person. That's how I feel. I mean, if you want to know me, then you need to know my story. And, you know, I think... I think you can you can take these experiences and you can decide to either let them dictate who you are or you can use them as ammunition for you to decide who you want to be. Yeah. And for me personally, I've always just taken these things as I don't know, as things that then power me on to like want to figure out who I want to be and what I want to do. And, you know, I always said to people, I can't, I can't look back negatively in a way at the cancer experience because of all the things I did because of it and all the people I met because of it mm. and the things that it taught me. And even in the last 12 months, I'm already starting to feel the same way about going blind. Like, you know, the people I've met, I've spoken to, the things I've learned, and even now, some of the things I've done in the last months, like, you know, doing a, a video with the Vision Foundation about blind lockdown life, um, you know, talking to a member of the royal family via Zoom. Um, like, <laughs> these things are not, like, these are not things I would have done otherwise. And, you know, you can choose to create positive experiences because of the negative, or you can live in the negative. And... Mm. I think the more positives you can bring out of it, the better. Yeah, well, I'd have to agree with you on all, all those. So, yeah, once again, thank you for for coming on. Um, is there, if, if people want to find you on, on your social medias, where, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at uh, MrJD1984 or on Instagram at the underscore blind underscore foodie. Right. So I've seen you describe some of your, your your plates of food, and they do sound complicated, but very, very, very nice. Yeah, I like to make some of like you know what one of my favorite things is, is how alt text has become like this um, hidden communication stream between <laughs> the blind community. Like you know, 
Sarah Millican, her alt text game is absolutely hilarious. Uh, I've, I've seen her, yeah. I've got yeah. That's fair play to her for doing that. Yeah, and brilliant. I kind of sometimes like to just throw in some cheeky comments into my alt text <laughs> just to like, you know, it's just between us sort yeah. of thing. It's like this little hidden world that the sighted people are not aware of. <laughs> <laughs> um, just gave it away now. I know. Oh, <laughs> First rule of this alt text world: Don't talk about the alt text world. No, no, we all need to talk about the alt text world. You get everyone to use it. Yeah. Um, but no, thank you for inviting me on. No it's problem. Been an absolute joy to talk about everything with you. Enjoyed listen. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks everyone for listening. And hope you enjoyed. And I'll catch you next week.